And we're live. Thank you for coming back for another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Misha Burnett, introduce himself to our listeners and viewers. Hi, I'm Misha Burnett, and... um... I write um, weird short fiction. Uh, I like to think of myself as the spiritual descendant of people like Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison and uh, uh, Frederick Brown. I don't compare myself to them in their league, but uh, that's the kind of spirit that I uh, that I aim for. And if anybody's listening, sorry, listening. As I say, if anyone's listening to this podcast, I'll, you know I have a special place in my heart for short content. So this is right up my alley. I wish it was more popular, but everyone's gotten so used to binging everything that the idea of just this one short little impactful story that, you know, hits you in the feels and then leaves you wanting more. I, I get it. So I, I really appreciate that you're, you're keeping that, uh, that alive for us. Sometimes I feel so, like I'm doing it single handedly, but, you know, I do what I can. That's why I put out the uh, the anthologies with Bayonet uh, books every year. We break even. It's not like we're making a lot of money. It's just I, I really do love short fiction. I'm kind of passionate about it. So, you know, you got to do what you can. Put your money where your mouth is. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them. And I actually was made aware of um, Misha through our mutual friend of the show, Declan Finn. And I made an offhand comment that we had several uh, cancellations just with babysitting issues and it being summer and parents having kids and he's like oh you want interviews i can get you a dozen in a minute and he posts one tweet and he tags like a hundred billion people and sure enough august is booked so thank you declan um but how did you become aware of the podcast was that when uh, when declan tagged you and said oh look yeah or did you hear us before uh I, I it came up on my twitter feed and i'm like oh yeah i happen to have something that i want to promote right now and if this guy will give me uh, a place to talk by all means you know Sign me up. All right. But um, before we can get started on the interview, we do have this one um, gatekeeping situation we got to handle. So the religion question, sir, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? None of the above. Oh, do tell. What's what's your uh, religion of choice? Oh, I'd say my big three are, are Dick, Dish, and Delany. Philip okay. Dick, Thomas Dish, Samuel Delany. Um if you're talking hard science, well, as hard as it as it gets, uh, science fiction, I tend to go more towards um, the the new wave. I like uh, I like a lot of the cyberpunk writers, um, okay. William Gibson, uh, Walter John Williams, um, that uh, Bruce Sterling. Bruce Sterling does some brilliant stuff. Um, <clears throat> To be honest, I watched Star Trek when I was a kid, and you know, I'm talking the original Star Trek because I'm an old man, but um, and I liked it, you know, when I was 12 and 13. Um, the the first Star Wars movie I thought was awesome, but it came out when I was 16, and um, uh, I'm not a big fan of of uh, of long drawn out make it last forever kind of series. Um, 
Serenity was of you know Firefly. Um, here, this is this is going to get me excommunicated, but honestly, I think the best thing to happen to Firefly was that it got canceled. Can you imagine season four of Firefly? You know, when Kaylee's a werewolf and and you know, <laughs> uh, you know Wash is switching body with with Zoe, and no, it just it 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 was it stayed good because it died young. That's my opinion. Uh, I think that if it lasted, lasted a, a full one full season would have been nice. Okay. But, um, but I think people romanticize it because it died so quickly and, and it's easy to sit here and think, gee, it could have been great. It could have been this, it could have been that, but you know, Comparing that to what it probably would have actually become, uh, I, I'm going to stick with my imagination. So there, uh, there's so, so much untapped potential with that canon and the lore they created. Oh yeah, yeah. But see, and that's the thing, and that 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 goes back to my love of short fiction is that you know it it throws by ending so quickly it throws everything on the audience. We get to imagine, you know. The, the scene in the pilot when Anara has got the um, um, has got the, the the syringe. What was that? You know, we never get to find out what that what that was all about. So we get to make up and what we make up in our mind is probably a whole lot cooler than it really would have been. Fair. I, this came out early aughts, so I'm not as familiar with what else was going on in TV back then on account of I was in college and busy. Um, but I, I never saw it when it was broadcast. It was it was one of those things that years later somebody said you've got to watch this and and loan me their DVDs. So that's how um, I found it. Yeah. At the time that it was actually out, I had small children, and and you know running around chasing them pretty much took all of my attention. Absolutely, that I can relate to. All right. Well, since we are polytheistic here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time? Um, once again, I'd have to say none of the above. Um, oh, okay. I have, I did eventually get all the way through the Lord of the Rings. It took me forty years between the time I first started to read it and the time that I finally dredged through it. Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, don't know anything about. Now, if you want to talk fantasy, um, Tanith Lee's Tales of the Flat Earth, uh, Michael Shea's uh, Niftaline, uh, Joe Clayton's uh, got a couple of different series out, Moon Gather and Moon Scatter and Skeen's Leap. Um, I like fantasy. I just don't particularly like those, you know, um, Ray Bradbury's The October Country, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, just not much into the the swords and armor kind of fantasy. I, I, I prefer the um, something's weird going on in what looks like the ordinary world kind of fantasy. So what, what they would call parent. So what they I, would call parent. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. There's sometimes a lag. We can't really help that. We do the best we can. So you're you're thinking along the lines of like the paranormal of the urban fantasy kind of deal? Yeah, that's what it gets characterized. But what would you call something like uh, like Clive Barker's Weave World? 
it is it is unquestionably magic. It is unquestionably fantasy, but it's not Tolkien style fantasy. It's not. Uh, um, that's a good question. Medieval stuff. I, that's a good question. I, I think I think at this point urban fantasy or paranormal fantasy is sort of a catch-all for anything that's in the modern world and we don't know what else to do with it. Pretty um, much, yeah, yeah. Which is I, where I where I do my work. That's that's me. I write stuff that's in the modern world that you don't know what else to do with. See, now that's going to make me want to do a podcast where we actually fireside chat where we dive into like paranormal and urban fantasy and stuff. Marking that on my calendar and we'll keep going because that's a fascinating discussion. All right. So we here at the Blasters and Blades like both the fantastical and the scientific. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? I'd have to say science fiction. Um, the first book that I can remember reading that really blew me away uh, was Samuel Delany's Nova um, that just it, it's so many uh, it's it's one that's not real well known but it's it's magnificent space opera it's this uh, epic story about these two people locked in mortal combat and and struggling to be the first one to to get a load of um, radioactive material out of the heart of a, a supernova an exploding star and it's just it works on pretty much every single level. Um, and that's one of the books that made me decide I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. Uh, I oh. mean, I read the uh, the more standard, uh, the Heinlein, your Asimov, your Clark, um, all of that kind of stuff. There wasn't a lot of, of um, there wasn't the big explosion of fantasy until I was, I was, um, more of an adult uh, when, um, well, I remember sort of Shannara came out, but um, only only Jim Rats wrote Reg sort of Shannara. Um, and then Lord Foulsbane and then the whole explosion, Raymond Feist and and um, and then the D&D tie-ins with the Dragonlance stuff. But, um, but the, like I say, the fantasy that I like has always been the real the stuff that doesn't tend to get labeled as fantasy, it's more, more likely to get labeled as horror. Um, so, but yeah, I'd say I started with science fiction. Uh, my mother had a huge collection of, of new wave, um, you know, Philip Dick, uh, um, uh, Anthony Burgess and uh, people of that, uh, that ilk that I read when I was way too young to understand what on earth was going on. Um, and, uh, and that had a big effect on me too. And also I'd say, I'd say poetry. Poetry has always been my first love. Um, you know, I, whenever I list the authors who were most influential on me, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, T.S. Eliot, uh, Coleridge, Oh God, Coleridge is just so magnificent, and a lot of a lot of fantastic, paranormal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, you know, you look at look at Byron Keats and Shelley, and and how much of their their stuff is uh, would, if it was prose, be considered fantasy. 
Okay, that's that's a deep answer, and I, I I do enjoy that. So, what was your first memory of the speculative fiction as a genre? Was it, um, I mean, was it one specific property that that you was your first experience with it? Ah, uh, Matthew Looney. Okay. So, those were kids' books that uh, that uh, my mother read to me, uh, and and actually The Hobbit. Um, and I, I said, you know, it took me a long time to get through Lord of the Rings, but I loved The Hobbit. I remember my mother reading that to me, and it just absolutely blowing me, blowing me away. Um, so, um, did you did you watch the Hobbit um, cartoon that was made out in the early eighties? That was the the Ralph Bakshi one. I do remember seeing that, um, and. Uh, of course, by then it was it, I, I was I was more into uh, uh, wizards and heavy traffic than that. Um, but uh, but yeah, anything Bakshi did was awesome. Um, so yeah, I do remember seeing that and Narnia. I remember I read the Narnia books. Um, it, it was funny because I did not realize they were a series. Uh, and the first one I read was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is still my favorite, although the the silver chair is pretty awesome, too. Um, and uh, just the idea of these invisible one-legged creatures bouncing around. I, I, I love that. <laughs> the duffel pumps or whatever they were called. Um, so once you read The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, did it make you want to check behind your closets? Ah, uh, no, no. I my closet was already inhabited by that point. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, all right. What is it like? So we talked about how you were introduced to, to speculative fiction, fantasy, and sci-fi, and whatnot. But what is it about the umbrella that is speculative fiction that you love so much? You get to lie and tell the truth at the same time. You get to talk about things that people don't talk about and you get to say hey you know this isn't real this is taking place on mars you know um the um um and there's all kinds of things that fit under that umbrella you know uh whether that's whether that's uh sexuality issues or racial issues or or political issues or whatever but the thing is that you get because you've got that that mask of unreality, you've got that that distance uh, that this the fantastic element includes. Uh, in a lot of ways, you get to be more honest and more um, deep than uh, than you would if you were just telling an ordinary story. Um, and uh, and I do a lot of that. I do a lot of let's take something that concerns me and and put a twist on it um and just uh and and see well you know if we took this to the logical extreme example is the um one of the short stories that basically nobody is indifferent about is uh, ursula kayla gwynn's uh those who walk away from umulus uh, you know, people either love it or they hate it. But the thing is, is it took, okay, let's take the 
the concept of the greatest good for the greatest number and test it to destruction by saying, okay, what if what if the one is just one individual? Does it still, you know, hold true? And, and of course, it doesn't. It's it's, uh, you know, a lot of people have looked at it in a lot of different ways. But um, but it takes that idea. Is it OK to oppress a minority uh, in order to get vast gains for everybody else? And, you know, I think it answers that question pretty soundly. Um, that sort of thing. Um, Delany, of course, um, and uh, uh, dealt with a lot of, of sexual issues in ways by making them fantastic that you couldn't have done, you know, in a, in a non-fantastic kind of story. Okay, so transitioning from the what you love about the genre to the writing side of things. So what is it like, how did that that experience go where you went from I love reading these things to I want to write my own versions of them? Like, where did that start for you? I don't remember it ever not being there. Oh, um, factory installed. Okay. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much as soon as I could hold a pencil, I was writing stories. Um, and they were really awful stories, um, because I was a kid and I didn't know anything, but, um, but yeah, I've always, um, I can't ever remember not wanting to, wanting to create, um, you know, I did a lot of drawing as well. I, for a while I, I was going to be a comic book artist because everybody was going to be a comic book artist. Um, but uh, then it turned out that I didn't have any talent in that direction. But uh, but yeah, pretty much I've never made the because and this goes back to something I was saying earlier about Firefly is that I've always taken possession of the media that I love is that, you know, I don't want you to make a sequel to whatever I want to make it, you know. I want to take your action figures into my backyard and tell my own stories. And every time I, I um, experienced a, a film or a TV show or a book that I really loved, whether or not I wrote it down, I wrote my own fan fiction, I guess you'd call it nowadays, of it in my head. Um, you know, it should have gone this way or, you know, this this would have made a better story or what if these guys you know what if what if the the klingons met the daleks you know um could uh uh you know could the incredible hulk punch out you know somebody the rock monster from star trek you know um and so it's 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 always been part of the same process i can't uh, if I like something, I will automatically start changing it in my head. <laughs> I do that too. When the story ends, I can always tell a story that was really well told because when it ends, I like keep the story going in my head and often you start yourself into the world. Right. Whether subconsciously or not. At first I didn't realize I was doing it, but then I was like, oh, that's basically me. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I started too. 
So many authors will let their own real world experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that you think shaped the kind of storyteller you are? Well, and this is something I, I, I talked about in my blog a little while ago, um, is that um, uh, my life experience very much, um, I tend to write about blue collar people because I'm a blue collar person. You know, I, I dropped out of high school, um, uh, bummed around, did a lot of other things. Um, I've always worked with my hands. Uh, right now I'm working as a maintenance man for a senior apartment building. Um, and, and that tends to be my characters is that I write about, you know, I write what I know. I write about uh, electricians and plumbers and, and uh, carpenters who, who end up fighting monsters, you know, uh, or being chased by them or falling in love with them or whatever. Um, you know, I've always figured that, that if you can't get a bazooka, the next best thing for a zombie apocalypse is a good pipe wrench, um, or uh, a circular saw or something like that. Uh, okay. so yeah, I, I, I definitely draw from my own work experience, which has been varied and, occasionally hazardous um in uh, in writing my stories well as long as you have all your fingers and toes you did a good job all right well it looks like my one of them might have been missing <laughs> but uh so transitioning from the writing side let's talk about things from a fan angle so have you gotten any cool cosplay or fan art from your your work yet no no uh and i think that's possibly because i tend to write nobody wants to dress up like a plumber uh, unless they're doing Super Mario, but uh, but I well, have then, gotten then. some interesting uh, uh, interesting uh, fan notes. My uh, my first uh, I, I before I started on short stories, I, I wrote a series of four novels called The Book of Lost Doors, and the main character in that story has got a demon living in his head that occasionally possesses his body and makes him do extraordinary things. But uh, I got uh, um, a guy that was writing me regularly who was talking about that he has a demon living in his head that is just like the one in this book. And it got kind of scary for a while there. Um, I'm not sure whatever happened to him. But, um, but yeah, so... Um, Cosplay, not exactly, but he was he was wanting to talk about, you know, the, and I kept saying, look, this is made up. This isn't real. You know, um, this is this is a, a fantasy story. But he's like, no, no, they're real. So uh, I'm not sure what category that goes into. Fair point. So has anyone ever asked for your autograph? Uh, not in person. Uh, people have asked for autographed books, and I will sign books. Um, my signature is terrible. Um, from a lifetime of having to sign work tickets, I just scrawl. The same reason doctors are bad at handwriting. You know, if you're if you're signing an invoice sixteen times a day, your handwriting becomes. Uh, but yeah, um, the the other kickstarters that. Um, I did with Kursova. They had autographed books as 
one of the uh, one of the premium th things. And so, yeah, I mean, they're 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 out there. You know, there are there are books signed with my name on it. Um, when I was working for the university uh, before I had this job, uh, I donated my books to the university library and they had me sign them all. So. So do you remember the first time a reader said, hey, I'd really like an autographed copy of this? Yeah, yeah, actually, it was uh, it was a reader slash reviewer. I was sending her a um, uh, a review copy for a book blogging site, and uh, and I was about to, and she said, "You're going to sign that for me, right?" And I'm like, "Wow, yeah, sure." I <laughs> never imagined somebody wanting my signature, but. I mean, except on a check, but yeah, sure, I'll I'll sign it for you. And that was kind of a, you know, and and when she got it, she posted a picture of it on her blog with, you know, the the open to the title page where I had scrawled my name on it. And she's like, "Wow, a signed book!" And I'm like, "Oh boy, I'm glad you're excited." I didn't think it was that big a deal, but okay. Um, well, it was a big deal for her. So it was a so big what, deal for her. Yeah. What is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? Was it the guy with the demon in the head? The guy with the demon in the head. Yeah, that would be that would be. Um, I've had uh, I've had um, people in my D and D group name uh, D and D characters after my characters or my stories, and that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, I, nothing really can can match the the guy writing me and telling me about the demon in his head. <clears throat> so what edition of D&D &D are you playing? Is it actually D&D &D or is it sh that shorthand for some other system? It's actually, uh, what is, it's ACKS, Adventurer Conqueror King System, which okay. is uh, very similar to first edition D&D. &D. Okay. Um, three die six in order. Um it's it's brutal. It's a very it's a Sunday night game on Roll Twenty, um, uh, and uh, and we've been playing for about three years. I've probably gone through twenty characters in that time period. Uh, the very first game we played um, was a total party kill with the first encounter, random encounter in the dungeon. We just rolled up new characters and went back in it. Um, it's it's very much uh, um, towards the wargaming side of uh, of role playing gaming, uh, more like squad later than uh, okay than uh, any uh, any theater bit. So, what's the longest you've kept a character alive? A couple of months, probably. Um, <laughs> okay. So. We we tend to we see all of us all of us have relatively high stress jobs and we tend to use the Sunday night game to blow off steam and we do a lot of stupid shit. He is not a, he is not a killer DM by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, and he'll generally give us every opportunity not to do what you know, we're about to do. Uh, and we're like, no, we could take it. We could take it. Sure. I'm a first level mage and I've already used my spell for the day, but I'm feeling lucky. Bring on the meth dragon. 
Um, so. Oh my goodness. Now I want to add a meth dragon to my campaign. Well, see, this campaign that we're playing in, we're currently, we've been in a number of different places, but for why we were in Chalt, I don't know if you've heard of that, but, um, and here comes my cat. Do not walk <laughs> on the keyboard, cat. Um, but currently we're in, uh, we're in long Florida. We're in a post-apocalyptic version of Florida. And, uh, and so there are like methed versions of everything, you know. Because uh, Florida. Yeah. Um, so any bath salt monsters? <laughs> we, we have run across bath salts a couple of times as a dropped treasure item. Uh, <laughs> they can be traded to, uh, there's a, a sub subclass of human beings called Florida men that um, the, the bath salts can be traded to Florida men for, for whatever they have, which is usually not much. Um, <laughs> okay. So this is the part of the interview where we ask you uh, everything that you have read. So can you give us the reader's digest version of your body of work? Um, yeah. Let's see. We've got a collection of science fiction short stories called Endless Summer, published okay. by Kostova. We have this. This is actually out of print now. Um, it's called Dual Visions. It's five short stories by me and five short stories by another author. Um, the stories that were in here are going to be in my newest collection coming out. Um this I'm particularly proud of, uh, Bad Dreams and Broken Hearts. It is a um, collection of stories all about the same character that uh, he's, a, um, he's a cop in a world uh, where magic works and is openly practiced. Basically, he arrests outlaw mages. Uh, the, the tagline is it's hard to it's hard to fight wizards and demons when you, all you have is a gun and a badge. Um, so uh, I, I like to describe it as dragnet with dragons. Um, one thing that I did very deliberately is my main character in this does not have any magical abilities himself. He's just an ordinary cop. It's everybody else who's got magic. Um, <clears throat> Dark Fantasies, which is was put out by Baby Katie Media, who publishes Story Hack. Uh, these are all fantasy short stories. Um, and I'd show you my novels, but I don't actually have copies of them. <laughs> okay. Um, but I have four, four, a uh, list, a uh, collection of four novels, because when I first started writing, I thought novel series was the only way to do it. Uh, that probably qualifies as urban fantasy. Um, they are set, they are based loosely on the, the Nova Express books by William S. Burroughs um, without the cut up and the weird punctuation and all the other stuff that Burroughs does that makes it hard to read. Um, but, uh, but Cat Skinner's book, Cannibal Hearts, uh, the Worms of Heaven and Gingerbread Wolves are the names of those. Um, and the, the more 
time that passes since I wrote them, the more that I see what's wrong with them. And uh, those are actually the only ones that I've, I've technically self-published. And I would love sometime to get them uh, edited and redone and published with another publisher, but so far nobody's interested. <clears throat> okay. And a whole bunch of other short stories. If you go to my Amazon page, it's like five pages long now because <clears throat> everything that I've contributed a story to is listed. And I've done a lot of collections, a lot of uh, magazines, um, most of my stories. And that's the great thing about short stories is when you sell them to somebody, uh, the rights revert to you generally pretty quickly. And so then you can sell the story again in your own collection. Um, so most of my most of my stories have been collected in one collection or another. Okay. Well, we're going to pause for a moment before we dive into the product that brought us here, and we're going to shamelessly shill for the man. When a CDC quarantine fails, a Houston SWAT team is sent in to secure Ben Tom Hospital. What they find is destruction and death. Trapped in the building, cut off from the world, a mysterious voice on the radio is all they have to guide them to destroy a multiplying menace that can infect the world before the federal government enacts a final solution. Paul E. Cooley's The Black Outbreak is a standalone parallel story to both the 2015 Parsec award-winning novel The Black and The Black Arrival, now available from Amazon.com in ebook and trade paperback. Podcast novel available at shadowpublications.com. We don't believe in happy endings. All right, so no happy endings, but we're going to try to be happy as we keep talking about the uh, the next next part of this interview. So while all, all that you listed sounded fascinating, today we're going to talk about an atlas of bad roads. You currently have this Kickstarter going, so this episode's going to air on Friday, August 5th, and you've got about a week-ish left at that point when you listen to this. But um, where did you get the premise for this collection? So like, how did you come up with the idea for, for the theme that you have going on? Well, some years ago, I decided I... I, I decided I wanted to do um, short stories and I wanted to do specifically, I set a goal for myself to do three collections. I wanted to do a collection of fantasy short stories, collection of science fiction short stories and a collection of horror. And I've shown you the other two and I'd show you the other, the, the horror one if I'd gotten the proofs in time, but I didn't. And this is the horror collection. So um, kind of, um, I started, I, I, I tend to write short fiction with, with an eye for not just the current market, but also an eventual anthology or collection. Uh, and so I, once I had my science fiction and fantasy collections out, I started edging more towards writing horror. And so every time I wrote a story, I'd think, is this going to go in the next book? Um, in addition to wherever else I was sending it. Um, so once I started looking at it and I got the stories, there are 16 stories, um, some of which have been published before, some of which hadn't. And I started looking for 
an overall theme, something to call it. And, and I realized that, that uh, I used a lot of different locations. I used a lot of, um, there's a, actually a fair amount of driving in the collection. And, uh, and so I said, well, okay, this is, this is going to be a, uh, a guide to places you don't want to go. Um, and so that's an Atlas of Bad Roads is, is the title I came up with. So Rand McNally, except for you don't want to go to any of these places. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, as a matter of fact, that's if you if you look at the Kickstarter, that's the um, uh, the concept that yes, there we go. The concept that uh, that Kursova used for the cover is, and that's actually from uh, a scan of uh, of one of my old map books because I like map books. I don't like GPSs. I want the actual paper you get from the Laclede Gas Company sitting on the seat next to me. Um, so yeah, that's the uh, the the concept and kind of the um, overall conceit is you know the the these are these are the places you'll oh the places you'll go. Um, <clears throat> And uh, and once we had that, then I then I was able to uh, kind of put the stories together. Um, so, given your your not your preference for not using um, GPS, do you ever laugh when you hear about people that have the dramatic incidents because they listen to a the GPS tell them what common sense said? Hey, don't turn there. The sign says we're one way, and it goes the other way. Yeah, actually, I do, and. Um, <clears throat> For a while, uh, here in St. Louis, uh, Highway 40, uh, 6440, which is one of the major, you know, ways through the city, um, was shut down. And, oh, my God, people were like, I didn't know that, the, you know, it routed me here. And then all of a sudden there's barricades in the way. And uh, and as a matter of fact, um, a while back, I was I was doing some work. Um, fixing shopping carts, actually. Um, and I was driving a, a large box truck through uh, rural Illinois. And I remember seeing, and somewhere I have a picture of, a, uh, a big sign on the side of the road that said, your GPS is wrong. Bridge ahead, <laughs> eight foot clearance. Because um, apparently people had just blithely driven on through and lost the top couple of feet of their truck there's a couple of places where there's bridges that that routinely happens and one of them they even had to update like the signs they lifted the bridge a little bit even to try and people just still like ram into it is it a rail bridge that it happened at because that might be the, yeah. the one i'm thinking of yeah, yeah it's got a reputation for that yeah apparently like i say they they, they put up the sign your gps is wrong i love that sign it's uh, awesome and they still don't listen because the accidents keep happening. Uh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, as a right. matter of fact, I, in, in one of the stories in this collection, I have my character uh, giving that opinion and saying that, you know, if, uh, if the satellites ever went down, that uh, half of America would starve to death because they couldn't find the grocery store. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Didn't do anything terrible. Well. No, you know you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. So, 
you mentioned that the you know we've talked about a little bit about the the story of the cover, but what came first, the concept or the cover? Like, was it you know? Oh, the concept came first. Yeah, I I when I pitched it uh, to to Alex, I said you know an atlas of bad roads, and he's like, I know just the cover to do, and he also did the cover for Endless Summer, which uh, we that that collection almost didn't have a title. <laughs> we spent the longest time trying to figure out what the title of that one was going to be. Um, but yeah. And he also he, he's got um, um, different, he, he's got an Atlas sized edition uh, as one of oh. the, um, yeah, he's going to be doing it in the, uh, the trade paperback, the regular trade paperback, and then the, um, the hardcover. And then the the atlas size, which is going to be uh, the same size as his magazine. Um, okay. Just uh, uh, we looked actually into getting the spiral binding, but that's way too expensive. So <laughs> it'll just be a, a, a standard uh, standard binding. Uh, and then you know some of the uh, the little extras that we made for the Kickstarter are you know souvenirs that you would pick up at, at the various different places. We've got business cards and, and we may not actually get in production with those if we don't make, make the, the stretch goals, but um, it was fun making them up. So that sounds interesting. When sometimes we have people come to episodes like a year or two after we post them if they're listening to this episode late and the Kickstarter close, can they still buy the book on like Amazon or your oh, website yeah. or somewhere? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Kursova's site. Um, he's been, you know, he's been going around with various different printers um, and has got tales of woe. I think currently he's, um, he's, going on hulu hulu yeah i think, I think it's the name of it uh he was doing ingram for a while but they just don't like dealing with small presses um and which is sad because that's where the big business is nowadays um but yes it will be it will be available in perpetuity all the different editions uh believe we're going to get um an audiobook version I have um, uh, a regular reader who does does my stuff, uh, Brandon Casanelli. He's incredibly talented, um, and I believe he's. I've already asked him about it, and and I think Alex is gonna gonna have him do the audio version, uh, and then you know Kindle. Um, if you still are one of the five people in America who has a Nook, you can probably get a Nook version. Uh, so it's gonna be wide. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the book itself. So what would your 30-second elevator pitch for this collection be? Blue-collar weird tales. Okay. That's direct and to the point. I like it. So what do you think makes your collection of, of short horror fiction special? Uh, I think it's my perspective. I think it's... it's um, I'm not... I'm not an MFA graduate. I'm not a, a typical creative writing school writer. I don't, uh, I don't write about 
college. Well, I used to work at a college, but I did maintenance there. Um, and and I think I think that makes my work more accessible in some ways. Uh, I think people can can read my work and and they're like, oh yeah, I know what it's like to get a call in the middle of the night and have to go into work. I know what it's like to, um, you know be in in a situation where somebody calls you and you gotta they want to borrow your truck or you know you're you're working the late night at a convenience store or you know butcher behind the counter and then old you know your ex-girlfriend walks in and it's really awkward that um i try to meet people where they live because i don't think uh, yeah i don't think the strategy of selling to um rich people in Manhattan has really been doing good for, for the traditional publishers. Um, I'm, I'm writing for, for Joe Blow. I'm writing for bus drivers. I'm writing for, you know, people, people who work for a living and just want to relax at the end of the day, or, you know, they're on their lunch hour and they want to get away from things for a while. And they, so, you know, a short story is good for that. Um, populous, you know, common touch. <laughs> okay. That's something, the everyman is something that, uh, that a lot of people can relate to. So that's not a bad strategy. So other than horror, what genre or subgenres would you place this collection into? Um, fantasy. Um, there's a number of, I mean, I've got, I've got elves in it. They're not elves that you would, you know, want to spend time with. Um, you know, I've got kind of uh, a couple of them have got kind of a Lovecraftian feel. Um, I've got actually one of them. One of the ones that I, I I'm most proud of is uh, is straight crime fiction. There's nothing supernatural or science fictioning happening at at all. It's just. I, I actually wrote that story originally for Switchblade magazine, and they accepted it. I'm very happy about that. But um, um, but yeah, most of them I would say are on the fantastic side rather than the the. I don't have any real. Well, I do have one time travel story in there that's pretty pretty much science fiction. Time travel is science fiction. Um, so yeah, I'd say more fantasy than anything else. A good place to be. Um, so you've already covered um, that these are all your stories. Um, do you ever do these Kickstarters where it's where it's multiple authors, or do you prefer to work? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was um, uh, I was in three of the planetary anthology stories, or you know uh, the the uh, oh what is that? Um, Originally started by Superversive and then taken over by a different different publisher, uh, Tuscany Bay. Um, the they did a, a, a story anthology for every planet in the solar system, and the moon, which is not a planet, and the sun, which is also not a planet. Uh, and I was in three of those: Mercury, Mars, and Neptune, or Mercury, Venus, and Neptune. Um, there's a uh, uh, a series of books on magical schools that uh, that I've been in. 
um, I, I'll work for anybody. I, I really love um, short stories and I, I really love working with different editors, working with different publishers, um, and working with different writers. Um, so, so I always keep my, my, my eyes open for, for new collections. I've got a, a group on MeWe that is uh, called Nasty, Brutish, and Short that uh, every time I find a, um, a call for stories, I post it there, just, uh, you know, kind of a clearinghouse. Okay. So do you, if we're looking at the collection as a whole, uh, the Atlas of Bad Roads, what tropes do you feel like you use in these stories? I mean, I know it's going to be hard to narrow it down, so just because there's so many, each one's gonna be a little different, but but which tropes do you feel like you use the, the best or the most? Well, once again, I'd say, I'd say uh, the, the working man uh, who during the course of his job encounters something uh, uncanny, inexplicable, uh, frequently dangerous. Uh, and that's, that's one that used to be a lot more prevalent prevalent and uh uh that's one of my own personal uh pet peeves is uh not everything has to be personal uh not everything has to be you know because you know your ex-wife is threatened or you know because your children are threatened sometimes people do heroic things because it's their job because it's they're they're in there uh, just trying to get through the day and and you know all of a sudden the giant slime monster oozes out and and you know you got to deal with it. Um, so uh, so I do a lot of that. I do a lot of um, missed connections, missed turns. Uh, in the introduction that I wrote about this, I talked about uh, getting lost is is such a prevalent opening for for horror movies because it's a good analogy. You know, you're you think you're going one place and then you end up someplace entirely different. You know, um, you think you're just driving to grandmother's house, but then all of a sudden you're in the middle of a cornfield being chased by, you know, giant scorpions or something. Um, hate it when that happens. Um, so yeah, I'd say, I'd say the, the central trope or theme is, is ordinary people who just are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, don't, don't go looking for it. Don't deserve it. Don't, uh, you know, uh, this isn't some kind of karmic payback or, or, you know, nobody's chosen. I, I know, don't have any chosen ones. I've just got, you know, some poor schmuck who's in the wrong place at the wrong time. So do these stories have a common, um, like, main character or secondary character that's throughout the, the stories, or are they all completely independent of each other? These are all completely different. Um, and they're not even, uh, they're not even in the same thematic universe uh they they're not the same 
the rules don't apply. So if you figure out what's going on in one story, that's not going to help you with the next one. <laughs> okay. These are all the, I start from scratch every time. So you have 16 stories. Do you have out of all those 16 main characters a favorite? Yeah, yeah, I think I'd probably have to go with with Pete Ferris, who is who is the main character of um, the Blacklight Ballet, who's a, um, a civil engineer who is uh, uh, surveying an abandoned mall for a company that wants to buy it and um, finds out that it's not quite as abandoned as he thought it was. Uh, but I like the way I like the way he handles the situation. I like the way that, um, and that's another thing. That's a, I tend to write very practical heroes. Um, you know, they don't uh, they don't necessarily accept uh, that they're doomed. Um, you know, if you he's he's going to work you know he's going to to check out this abandoned mall and he's dressed for it he's got he's got steel-toed boots on he's got you know his flashlight and his multi-tool and his leather gloves and uh and he's not he's not easy prey he's not easy picking it's and uh and he rescues the girl um and uh and that's always nice um you know, the the bad guys have got a captive and he he figures out, you know, how to get her out of the cage that they've got her in um, and gets her out of the mall entirely. Um, and it's got a, as, as close to a happy ending as I ever get. <laughs> OK, so do you with short stories when you this is more of a broad question a little bit. When you write your short stories, do you tend to keep the cast small enough? Or do you have enough room when you write yours that you could have a, a secondary character have enough space to be flushed out? I tend to uh, I tend to focus on one person um, and just follow them through. Um, there are there are exceptions. Uh, there's uh, a story I recently finished that's not going to be in this collection that is at the moment does not have a publication um, venue, but it's a, it's a story about a man who is sent to a, um, a space station or an asteroid uh, the, to grow food for, uh, for Earth. Uh, basically, he's bankrupt, and the bankruptcy court says, you know, if you go volunteer to work this asteroid, we'll, we'll discharge your debts. Um, and uh, and he gets there and he finds out that there's it's, a, you know, the people who are already there uh, are, are from a, uh, a prison. They're all prisoner uh, conscripts and it's a women's prison. And so he's up there with with uh, with 10 women. And I fleshed out that those characters. I think I made them all uh, individual people. Um, but it's also a very long story. It's uh, like. 24,000 words, which is on the long end for short fiction. Um, but that's kind of an exception. And that's kind of a, I wanted to, I wanted to play with the concept. Um, 
Generally speaking, yeah, I, I tend to do one-man shows. Um, uh, the, the, a lot of the format is, is the old Twilight Zone, where it's just this guy, and they, this is what happens to this guy. Um, and I think it's easier that way. Easier as a writer and easier as a reader. Definitely want to have you back to talk about the prison story. That sounds interesting. And that's um, what's that novelette or novella? I get those two mixed up. Um, I don't know what the. I think it's a novelette at that size, but I don't quote me on it. And if you know what it is, dear listener, put it in the comment section when we share this around the social medias. But um, so th when you wrote for this collection, um, since there are no secondary characters, is there a, a favorite bad guy that they face? Or is it more like man versus nature is the bad guy? Oh, yes. Um, favorite bad guy. Actually, it's a, it's a couple. Uh, Tam and Robin Lynn from uh, The Silk of Yesterday's Gown. And... Um, they're, and I never actually say what they are in the story. I do a lot of that. I do a lot of uh, weird shit happens, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. But, um, but that is, um, they're, they're absolutely my favorite antagonists. Um, the, the story's about a very wealthy man um, who, uh, whose wife likes to, likes to play the field and he likes to watch and uh, she gets involved with this couple who turn out to be um, something other than human and uh, but uh, but the way that because uh, I, I, I try to do it very subtly I like to think of myself as subtle and uh, uh, dropping hints that all is not kosher with those two um, and that's, that's kind of a, kind of a cautionary tale, kind of a, a, uh, almost an EC comics, you know, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit that, uh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get involved with polyamory because maybe horrible things will happen, you know, which <laughs> is, isn't isn't something I necessarily believe, but it makes a good hook. It makes a good, you know, because it, eventually it gets to the point where this guy can't really back out without causing a scandal. And and um, because he's wealthy and he's hyper, you know, in the public eye, um, that cuts off some of the options um for, for dealing with the situation uh, because he has to think about his reputation and he has to, you know, can't get out that, you know, I like to watch my wife screwing other people. Um, but yeah, I'd say they were, they were probably my favorite antagonists. Okay. So speaking of characters, uh, it sounds like you did a lot of horrible things to yours. So if they ever met you in a back alley uh, and they knew who you were, how do you see that interaction playing out? Well, um, hopefully I will get my fantasy characters to form a ring around me to keep the science fiction characters away from me. Um, <laughs> okay. And that's something I noticed when I was writing the introduction to my fantasy collection is that I'm a lot nicer to them 
Um, there are there are several fantasy stories that I've read or that I've written that actually have a happy ending that, you know, they lived happily ever after. Um, and and a couple of others that at least, you know, they got away with their lives. So um, but then, you know, when I think about it, if if, if it's, you know, taking the story as a whole, um, the ones that I really mess with don't survive. So I don't have to worry about them, you know. Um, it depends on at what point in the story the character comes to get me. <laughs> okay. So since we've talked a little bit about your characters from this collection to give people just a taste of what they can expect, um, do you have a favorite character archetype? Uh, well, once again, it goes back to the, goes back to the same. I, I feel like I keep saying the same thing over and over again in different ways, but it's the, uh, it's the working Joe. It's the guy that rises to the occasion. And that's actually, that comes from um, old fairy tales. Um, because we live in a world that is so different than the one that the, that the fairy tales were originally told and written in, um, we, don't, we tend not to, we tend to think of of woodchoppers and shepherds as exotic characters, but they weren't to the people that the stories were intended for. They were just working Joes, you know. Uh, they're the equivalent of truck drivers and, and you know. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the Miller's son. It's the, um, the poor woodchopper who's, who's out in the woods and he encounters the, the big bad wolf or the wicked witch or whatever. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be my standard my standard character. I just updated for the 21st century. So for this collection, you mentioned that this was set in sort of the modern world with a twist. Um, are are any of them you think going to link together? Obviously, you said no as of now, but do you see doing that in the future where you link some of your short content together and potentially characters interact with each other down the road? This is just idle curiosity since the question didn't apply. <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> As a matter of fact, a couple of my stories, uh, one of them is called We Pass From View and links to my series of novels in that, in that um, the... Um, uh, the the character in the short story is making a movie of a book written by the character's father from the novel. Um, in general, though, they no, they they tend to be uh, over. You know, it's it's like I don't want uh, Pete Ferris from the Blacklight Ballet. I don't want to bring him into another story. I feel like he's suffered enough. Um, uh, yeah. And then, then of course, you know, some of them uh, are completely different. Um, I've got, I've got an alternate history uh, story in there, the summer of love that uh, basically a man goes back in time and kills Hitler and comes back to the present and find out that he's made things worse. Um, uh 
Time travel paradoxes can be fun. <laughs> I've, I've got I've written two time travel stories now. One of them, that's one of them. The other one is in Endless Summer, and um, and um, and I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Um, one of the one of these novels that uh, that literally changed my life was Tim Powers' The Anubis Gate. Uh, once I discovered Tim Powers, I was like, wow, this opens up whole worlds. That uh, and that's a time travel novel. Um, so, any plans to take some of these short content stories and turn them into something larger? No, absolutely not. I uh, that's you you you, you touched a nerve there, but so many writers end up taking great short stories and making them into mediocre novels. And uh, and here's something else that I'm going to be going to be in the uh, in the blasphemous corner here, but uh, Ender's Game, Ender's Game was a great short story, a classic short story, um, turned into a mediocre novel, um, and and people are like, oh, but the novel's so good. But have you read the original short story? Can you find a copy of Unaccompanied Sonata, which is Orson Scott Card's? first short fiction collection and uh and read that um but um and larry niven larry niven did that with a uh he had a number of of good short stories that he expanded into into mediocre novels and it's not that novels are bad um novels it's, it's a perfectly legitimate art form but the thing is that it doesn't translate it doesn't um a short story should end, should um, be short, you know, kind of by definition. Um, and, it, and it should be built around a single conceit, not always a single character, but a, a, a small group of characters. And, uh, and it's a different sort of thing. It's a different, um, and, and I can't think off the top of my head of any, fiction that was originally written as a short story and was expanded into a novel and actually the novel gave more than the original short story. Um, generally speaking, it's the same thing, only longer, only uh, stretched out like, uh, there's my dog. Um, dog and the cat are fighting. Anyway, uh, and I and I realize that's an unpopular uh, opinion, but uh, and I could be wrong, I, and and I'm perfectly willing to admit if somebody comes up with an example uh, of a of a short story that became a good novel, um, I'm I'm willing to consider. Just thinking about it, I can't think of any off the top of my head. What about short stories that are braided into a novel? Those those meet your acceptable standards because they're not really changing much. Well, um, they're almost sequential, right? Right, and I did that. I did that with Bad Dreams and Broken Hearts. Is that each of the stories is an individual story, but there is an overarching storyline that uh, that they tie together at the end, and that's cool. And that's, I mean, that's what what uh, uh, basically the the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. You can follow along the character. Um, um, uh, 
do, 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 cannot think of the author, uh, Tales of the City. Um, Somerset Mom. My, my peanut roommate. gallery has spoken. <laughs> yes, my roommate said. Anyway, uh, that were originally published as short stories in uh, uh, San Francisco newspaper, I think. But uh, but it's it's a it's same group of characters, and the stories weave together, and and uh, um, so yeah, no, I think that's uh, it's perfectly acceptable. It's uh, it's just these particular, and I think part of that is is horror as a genre is that um, it doesn't tend to um, it doesn't tend to do well with continuing characters. Um, yeah, it's almost like being, you. It's almost like you need to know that there's a risk of death, and if the character is continuing, you know, and, well, you know, you know, exactly. the, the, the stakes are gone. Right, right, and and it's like uh, uh, Kolchak, the Night Shock, the Stalker, which is one of my influences. I should have, when you were asking about early influences, uh, thought it was the greatest thing in the world when I was in sixth grade. Um, but it got silly after a while because you knew, because of the format of the TV show, that there's only there's only so bad things that can happen, you know. Yeah, none of the none of the um, the continuing characters were going to die. Or okay, um, Maupin is the author's name of Tales of the City. She's looking it up. Armistead Maupin. Um, anyway, um, there have been some. Um, uh, the, the most of them in the uh, the paranormal detective um, genre, um, some continuing horror characters. But generally speaking, you know, okay, you know, you, you run into a werewolf once, but that's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime event. You know, when you run into a, a vampire the next year, there's something, it's it's just lacks its punch. Um Horror is supposed to be shocking, and if it happens every week, it's not shocking anymore. You know. Okay. So you don't do. You prefer to keep your short fiction short and not to change it enough to make it long fiction. Do you ever think about writing sequels for some of your short stories, assuming the guy's alive still and you know functioning? Yeah, I do have. I do have uh, some continuing. Like I said, the 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 detective in bad dreams and broken hearts, and and even after I finished that book, I've I've written other stories about him. Um, I've got some uh, fantasy um, settings that uh, that are the same. Um, they're not direct sequels, but they're set in the same world, um, which I never really got a name for, um, but. Um, but uh, so yeah, I do, I do, I, and and sometimes sometimes a world is someplace you want to visit more than once. Um, so when you write, do you consider the world almost as much of a character as the protagonist and antagonist? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, so that that would be something you could revisit as a as a theme, or as just in general, you could go back to that same place yeah. with different people. 
Yeah, although, you know, a lot of my short stories are also kind of um, thought experiments. And, um, um, you know, what if the world was changed in this particular way or that particular way or, or you know, um, and those a lot of times, once I've explored it, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> which is a terrible, terrible curse for a writer is that, you know, I can't write unless I've actually got something to say. Um, and, um, and so, you know, and, and that's, that's part of why I think my output is so low because I'm creating a new universe every 10,000 words, uh, which, you know, when you've got, yeah. uh, when you've got, uh, an epic fantasy or science fiction series, you know, all your groundwork carries over. You get this, you don't have to go back and figure out, well, what's this? What's that? You've already got it figured out. And, um, um, but then of course that's also a straitjacket is, and I found that out when I was writing my series of novels is that, uh, I, I, I wasn't free to improvise because after a while it's like, oh, I have to be consistent with this. I have to be consistent with that. And I'm, I'm terrible with consistency. Maybe that's my, uh, my, my secret uh, is that, that I like being able to start from scratch and, and uh, you know, because otherwise I'll want to revise and rewrite. And it's like, no. We're done. We'll get a brand new blank sheet of paper. Start from scratch all over again, and uh, and don't have to worry about what happened before. Don't have to worry about remembering anybody's name or, you know. Uh, I tend to use the same names. Actually, I've got. I realized uh, once that I had uh, two different characters in two different stories who were named Butch Norton, so I had to change one of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so your your short stories, or at least some of them, have aliens and or fantastical creatures in them. So when you go about creating them, do you let nature inspire you? Are you inspired by folklore, nightmares? Like where do you draw your inspiration when you're creating these these creatures? Um, I have no. <laughs> Um, all over the place. I am, I am, I am all over the place. Um, I do a lot of stuff from music. Um, there are, That's a new one. There, go on. There are, are characters that I call Norns, uh, aliens. Well, uh, alien is as good a word as any, uh, in, uh, bad dreams and broken hearts that, um, that, Basically, the whole concept of the species came from a line from um, Shriekback's song Nemesis. Uh, that is, we drink the elixirs that we refine from the juices of the dying. And and so I developed a species that survived, that, that um, did their, their uh, magical focus um, from... Uh, from draining fluids from human beings as they died. Um, Soiling green is people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, they're, they're, it's like it depends on what function they have in the story. 
in uh, in my short story, Milk, Bread and Eggs, um, I have an alien invasion and uh, well, not invasion. They're visiting. They're not actually invading. And uh, I just have placeholder aliens they're they're these silver eggs that float in the air i have no idea what's inside the egg or what what they like or what where they're from because none of that's relevant to the story um they just i needed aliens and so it's like boom aliens um you know in uh in one of the stories in atlas um called the lord of slow candles uh, there's uh, there's a woman, she's a bag lady, but there's a reason for it. And uh, and she basically is this paladin who is fighting off things that nobody other than her can see. And everybody thinks she's crazy because she's interacting with things that nobody else can see. And uh, and I just I, I went to as bizarre as I could for these things. I've got things called fingerers and, and eyeball butterers and carpet lurks and, and just, but I don't flesh any of these things out except for the grooves, which, uh, um, you know, I explain what those are, um, and tanglers. And I just, um, I just supply the names and let the reader figure out what the hell these things actually are. Um, I try not to, I try not to, explain anything that isn't directly associated with the story. Um, and the example I like to use is if, if somebody is, you know, if you open a story with somebody being chased through a parking structure by giant scorpions, I don't want the re reader thinking, gee, you know, I wonder where the scorpions came from or, you know, I wonder what building this parking structure goes to. What I want the reader to be thinking is, does he get away or does he, do they get, you know, do they eat him? Um, and that's another thing that, that short fiction does is it forces you to focus on what's important. And, um, and so many people I, I see all the time in writers groups where, where, they're saying, oh, I've got this this book and it's only 80,000 words and I need to come up with another 50,000 words. You know, what what can I put in? And it's like if you're putting stuff in to make word count, then it's almost certainly not going to be something I want to read. You know, um, stick to the basics, stick to to what, you know, I, I talk about Joe and his sandwich. You know, that that my my formula is there's this guy named Joe and this Joe is hungry and he wants to get a sandwich and and something horrible happens. There's there's a werewolf between him and his sandwich. And and that's what you, that's what you want. You want to know, does Joe defeat the werewolf and get his sandwich or not? You know, um, I like to say that, that the basic. Uh, the basic formula is that you've got a, a relatable character who has got a reasonable goal, something that, you know, he deserves to have and some completely unreasonable obstacle shows up between him and it. Um, 
I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, no, you you answered it. So you talked about you've you've got some time travel stories. Did you ever play with um, parallel universes? They often go hand in hand. So they often do, and that's what uh, that's what um, the summer of love in uh, in Atlas of Bad Roads is is that it opens in the alternate world. It uh, it opens in an America that is that is basically under the heel of a one world government, one world Soviet government. And the main character is uh, a guard, a prison guard in a concentration camp in Nevada. And um, so he that's all he knows. That's he doesn't you know, uh, that's the world that that was created when the other character went back in time and killed Hitler. But um, but he's not aware of what our world was. And um, and so, uh, yeah, because everything everything changes. Um, uh, and I do have some I, I wouldn't really go so far as to say alternate history because that involves a whole lot more work than uh, than I'm willing to do uh, yeah. but uh, but you know worlds what if what if this was different what if you know there were there were local gods who who controlled how things operate what if uh, you know what if magic was real what if uh, uh, and, and every story is really an alternate reality in some kind of way. Even even the most mundane thing, you're going to find, you know, people, places, and things that don't exist in the real world. And maybe they're things that could exist in the real world, but they don't. And that and at that point, you have created an alternate reality. It's just not one that's very different than our current one. Okay. So as we wrap this up, you've got this Kickstarter, which is what we've been talking about, some of the content that's in it, and you know, just our mutual love of short fiction. It's currently funded and it sits at like 2700 So what stretch goals do you have that you're hoping that people are, are able to unlock? Because um, we'll obviously link the Kickstarter in the show notes, but which one are you hoping for the most? Well, um, I, I'd like the, I'd like the, we, we've got, we've got keychains. Um, uh, the little little bottle opener keychains, souvenir, the kind of souvenirs that you you pick up that that from from various different locations in the in the stories and and I really want a set of those. So and I think that's four thousand dollars. But um, but that's what I'd like to that's what I'd like to unlock. Um, so I'm looking at the uh, the website, and I realize you've got a lot going on. So four thousand dollars is the business cards, and then eight thousand dollars is oh, the oh, yes um, the souvenir um, keychains. Right, right. Uh, does look neat. Um, I certainly have a collection of those in my junk a drawer of many junk things that one of these days I promise I'm going to go through and clean out. <laughs> we all have one of those, and it's always in our kitchen for some reason. Well, I um, love that kind of thing. I love. Uh, uh, tchotchkes from fictional worlds, you know. Um, I, I just you don't see that kind of thing very often. But even 
even though it's like like I've got a I've got a T-shirt from uh, the Ghost Facers from the Supernatural TV show, um, that kind of stuff. I, I just it's it that it's probably the geekiest thing about me, you know. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, as we wrap this up, was there anything we didn't ask you about this Kickstarter that you wanted to tell us before we move on? Um, well, I think I mentioned, but I do want to uh, put on a uh, uh, say it again is that uh, is that I've included poetry. Uh, there are sixteen stories. There are sixteen poems, and the poems aren't directly tied to the stories, but I tried to match tone anyway. Um, but I think poetry is, is sadly neglected. And when I say poetry, I mean, formal poetry. I mean, stuff that rhymes, that has an actual metrical scheme to it. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, I, I, I try to say that as often and as loud as possible, that if you want to write good fiction, write good poetry, just, or write bad poetry, just learn to write it because it teaches an economy of style. It teaches a feel for the rhythm of language that, uh, and that's the main reason I included the poetry actually was for, for to, so that people could see the connection between, uh, between poetry and, and fiction. So. Okay. And we ask this question every time. So this is horror. And so some, Sometimes horror can be a little much for some readers. So what age range would you say your collection is suitable for if you were going to give an age? If a parent's saying, is this suitable for my kid? No, it is not suitable <laughs> for your kid. No, definitely adult, uh, uh, 18 and up, 21 and up. Uh, I, have, I have bizarre sex. I have uh, violence. I have adult themes all over the place. So this is definitely an adults only collection. Okay. Uh, and before we... one, not all of my stuff is, but this particular collection is. That's fair. Um, so before we let you go, dear listener and uh, viewer, uh, we will remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And uh, if you buy this on the Kickstarter, when this goes out on Amazon at, you know, however long after launch day, be sure to mosey on over and, and leave a review. He would greatly appreciate it. Um, they do, they do really help readers determine what books to get. So, um, uh, Misha, before we let you go, can you tell listeners how to find you? I'm right here. <laughs> um, <laughs> best way, best way to, to is, is Twitter, uh, which is just Misha Burnett uh, or, you know, uh, uh, cinnamon bun Misha Burnett. Um, I also have a WordPress blog that I don't update nearly enough. That is uh, Misha Burnett dot uh, WordPress slash Misha Burnett dot com. Um, I'm on Miway, Miwi, same name. Basically, I just just search for my name. <laughs> I I I I'm, I've never been good at working out screen names or pseudonyms, so I just use my real name everywhere, which you know probably is going to make me easy to cancel one of these days. But you know I'm willing to take that risk. Um, but uh, but Twitter has got links to everything else, so okay. that's kind of what I use as my anchor social media um that that if you if you find me on twitter then that will have links to 
my my WordPress and and everything else. Okay. Um, so as usual, dear listener, the links will be in the show notes. He's got all of them. Uh, you can find us on our Twitter account at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, blasters dash and dash blades on anchor.fm. You can uh, also support the show there for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Uh, or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast, and I promise I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders, uh, and if they were here, they would tell you they mama didn't raise no quitters. But uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for Nick Garber and Doc Seska. Woo, stumbled over that one today. I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.